want to, this is Pastor Andrew, who is on our executive team. He's an amazing friend, pastor, and uh, I was saying in the last service, don't let, don't let age deceive you. He's young, but this guy is very wise. Uh, every time, like he's, he's the one that he'll be quiet, and then all of a sudden he'll be in with our pastors, our executive team, and he'll say something, and everyone will go, oh, that's really good. So we're blessed and honored to have Pastor Andrew as part of our team. You're blessed and honored too, let me tell you. Uh, and so without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to him because this is an awesome message. So get your ears open, perk up, here we go. Thank you. Yes, I'm very excited to get to share. Uh, Lord's been kind of taking me on a journey, teaching me some new things. And so uh, I hope that this morning you're excited not just to hear a message, but to be changed by the Word of God. Um, Today is a great day to become more like Jesus, and we can do that as we read his word. So if you have your Bibles, um, we're going to jump straight into it. Uh, flip open to John chapter 13, and it'll be on the screens in just a minute. But before we get there, I want to just sort of preface. In John chapter 13, what we're going to look at is kind of the evening um, evening before Jesus goes to the cross. It's one of his last nights with his, with his disciples, with his crew, and he's... Um, going to interact with them in a few different ways, going to give them some, some final instructions, and we're going to look at that, and we're going to kind of extrapolate a, f a few different ideas of how we can change the way that we think about God's love, about both our love for God and God's love for us. And so this morning as we do that, we're going to specifically look at two of the disciples, Peter and John, who were some of uh, Jesus' closest friends. And and the Lord's been speaking to me a lot about this idea of friendship with God and his friendship towards us and us towards him. And he's been speaking it to me through my daughter, Ryan Kate. Uh, Luna and I have a, a beautiful two-year-old. She'll be three next month. And for those of you who have children or can remember back when your children were that age, it's an exciting time because they're learning new things always. And one of the things Ryan Kate's been learning most recently is about friendship. Friends, um, how they treat her and how she can be a good friend to others. And it's been really interesting to see her understand this concept and apply it in different, although sometimes unusual, ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, those, are, uh, those who have two-year-olds are, are laughing because they're like, oh, I know where he's going with this. Um, we, we pulled up somewhere yesterday, and Ryan Kate was in the backseat of the car, and she's seeing kind of the out the window, and she says, are we at Cousin's house? That's how she refers to her cousin. Her cousin's name is Zara. She doesn't call her by her name. She just calls her cousin. I don't really know why, but that's what she does, and it's kind of cute. So she says, are we at cousin's house? And we said, no, we're not at cousin's house. Undeterred, she says, cousin is my best friend. And I said, oh, well, that's really sweet. It's great that you're friends with your cousin. That's awesome. Last week, however, we were walking around uh, one of the museums in Denver, and so that Ryan Kate wouldn't touch the artwork, I put her up on my shoulders, because that was the easiest way for me to maintain, like, a, a arm's distance away from expensive paintings. And, uh, and so she's on my, on my shoulders, and we're looking at different things, and I don't know if it was the vantage point or just something in her own mind that had kind of triggered this train of thought, but as a, uh, as a mom and a daughter walked past us this way, Ryan Kate looked at them, looked at the mom, looked at the daughter, and then kind of looked down to me, under, you know, she's on my shoulders, looked down to me and she said, she's not my best friend. And I thought, oh, like, and she said it loud enough that everyone could hear, and I sort of thought, like, oh, ha, ha, and I had to, like, pull her down and, like, talk to her, like, hey, like, that's true, but, like, you don't say it, and I had to, like, <laughs> like, how do you explain to a two-year-old that there are things you can think, but you shouldn't say them, and then even then, like, 
I don't know if you need to be thinking that, like and trying to talk about like, well, we could be friends with everyone. And I don't know, it's just, it digressed because she was two. And so I put her back up on my shoulders and just kind of like hoped we didn't see them again walking around the exhibits. And so the Lord's been speaking to me about this idea of friendship, and he's been kind of illuminating me through these passages in John and through the New Testament where um, there are some disciples who are convinced of their love for God, and there are other disciples that are convinced of God's love for them. And I think the same is true for us today, that we can be either convinced and focused on our love for God, our friendship with God, or God's love for us, God's friendship for us. Sometimes in life, there are, there are these un- imbalances in relationships or in, um, in social structures. When you're uh, a kid in grade school and you see someone and you're like, oh, I want to be friends with them. And you're young enough like Ryan and Kate, you just walk up and you'll be like, you want to be my best friend? And they're like, yes. And you're like, cool. Now I know how we both feel about each other. This is great. When you get into middle school and high school, it gets a little bit different. Uh, I get the opportunity on Wednesday nights to work with a bunch of the middle and high school. And sometimes we see this play out where like, One individual is really interested in hanging out with another individual, but isn't really sure if that person is as interested in them. And so there's always this, like, complicated plan to get this friend to talk to that friend, to ask them, like, on the down low, are they interested in this person? And it's like, that student knows exactly how they feel about that boy or girl, but they don't know how that person feels about them. And, and sometimes that even follows us into our adult life where, um, you know, a spouse will, will kind of feel distant from another spouse and be like, well, I love them, but I'm not sure if they still desire me in the same way that they used to. Or in a work context of like a new coworker or if you start a new job, I'm excited about my coworkers, I want to get to know them, but I'm not sure if, if like I fit in, I'm not sure if they like me. And sometimes there can feel this imbalance. And I think sometimes we can even project that onto our relationship with God. We can be fully convinced of our love for God and still a little unsure of God's love for us. We can be convinced that I am, I am trying to be the best friend to, to Jesus, but I'm not sure if Jesus would call me his best friend. I, you know, the savior of the world, something like 8 billion people on the planet, I don't know if he would call me his favorite, but I think that, I think that he's my favorite. And, and today I want to shine some light on that, not just because I think it's something worth talking about, not because I think that it's, a, it's just a, a fun argument about semantics, but I think it goes so much deeper than that. I think that this idea of understanding God's love for us is, is tied into a foundational identity that if we can grab a hold of that, it changes how we do everything. It changes how we live our lives. It changes how we love other people. It changes how we love our family, our spouses, our children. And it changes how we love our neighbors and the people around us. And so this morning, I want to take a deep dive into a few different passages. And I want to, and I want to begin to compare and contrast two different disciples, one of who was convinced of his love for God, and another who is convinced of God's love for him. So let's take a look. John chapter 13, starting in verse 6, it says this. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. I want to look at this, this scene of the foot washing. Jesus had taken off his outer cloak, his outer garment, and had gotten down on his hands and knees and was washing his disciples' feet. It's one of the most beautiful examples of servant leadership, the leader of the group serving the rest of the group, not, not lording his position over them, saying, oh, I'm king of kings, the Lord of lords, you guys should bow to me. Instead, getting down on his hands and knees 
and washing their feet. And we don't know if he had washed one and then got to Peter, number two, and Peter was like, wait, what's going on here? We don't know if he had done all 11, and Peter was still a little bit confused about, like, wait, what are you doing? Either way, Peter didn't understand it. Jesus acknowledged that he didn't fully get it, said that someday you would, and said that this needed to happen. But I think more so than literally washing feet for us to belong to Jesus, because I don't I don't know of anyone who Jesus has manifested before them in the flesh and then like physically like taken off their shoes and washed their feet. I don't, I don't know anyone, but yet I'm still confident that we all belong to him. I think what this represented was something so much deeper. I think it was a metaphor for the idea of God serving us in love, that he would love us so much that he would take off that outer robe, that he would get down on his hands and knees, and he would serve us in this way to show a deep and intimate love for us. And I think it was that that kind of threw Peter for a loop. Peter was so used to boasting in his love for Jesus, he was quick to, to do things or to say things, and, and he was the first to do that, but I don't think he fully was confident in Jesus' love for him. In, in context outside of Scripture, some of the few times that we see foot washing like this is at weddings. I don't know if you've been to a wedding like this. I, I have. I've seen it a few times where uh, the bride and the groom will take a moment during their ceremony, and they'll take off their shoes, and they'll wash each other's feet. And it's, to the rest of the world, it might be confusing and weird. Like, why, when you're so beautiful, would you want to focus on your feet? Like, that seems strange. But what it is, is it's representative of this beautiful, selfless, self-sacrificing love for another person. That on the day that you exchange vows, you would, you would say that, that nothing else would I hold back from you, but I would give up so much of myself, my, my pride, my stature, all of that to serve you in this kind of lowest way of your feet. And I believe that that was a lot of what was taking place in this moment. Peter was resistant to it because he was confident in his love for Jesus, but not entirely confident of Jesus' love for him. I want to compare and contrast this to just a few verses later where we see a passage uh, of them having dinner together. The same group of disciples, uh, they've finished the feet washing and now they're, they're having dinner together. And, and during the dinner, we pick up in verse 21 of chapter 13, it says, Now Jesus was deeply troubled and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. Simon Peter, who we just read about, motioned to him to ask, who's he talking about? The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. And, and this next to, the New Living Translation translates it next to. Other translations will, will describe it as reclining in the chest or reclining in the bosom of Jesus. That's sort of like King James language. New Living just says next to. And that's kind of a weak, watered-down interpretation of this. This isn't just high back wooden chairs at a tall table. This is kind of pictured a little more Moroccan style, reclining on some, on some pillows, and, and this disciple whom Jesus loved is just reclining on Jesus' chest. And that's a beautiful picture of, of intimacy and, and of relationship and of closeness. I don't have any friends, regardless of what I'll say about loving my friends, I don't have any friends that I'm okay with them just like coming up and like cuddling in my chest. No, sir, like that space is reserved for my wife and my daughter and very, very, very few other people. Even my own dad, I love my dad. My dad loves me. I don't feel comfortable always just like reclining like in his chest like as a grown man. It's a little bit strange. It's a little weird. I have personal boundaries and like personal space. And so if one of my friends were just to come up and be like, we're having dinner together, we invite them over, we're hosting, and then he climbs into my chair and sits in my lap, I'd say, excuse you, 
there's your place. But this didn't happen. This disciple that Jesus loved was so aware, was so conscious, was so confident even of Jesus' love for him that he just nestled right up in there and he said, hey, let's have dinner together like this. And Jesus was okay with it. Peter, who was confident in, Jesus, in his love for Jesus, but we can assume a little bit that he wasn't as confident in Jesus' love for him, was seated a little bit further away. And when there was some confusion about who was going to betray Jesus, he didn't have the confidence to just ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, who is it? What do you mean by that? I don't understand. Is it me? He doesn't say any of that. Instead, he motions to this disciple whom Jesus loves, and he says, hey, why don't you ask him? You're nestled in right there. Look up to him and ask him. And this is exactly how it unfolds. Let's continue reading. Um, Simon motioned to him to ask, who's he talking about? The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table, reclining in his chest. So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus responded, it is the one to whom I give the bread I dip into the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan had entered into him. Then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. Now catch this next part. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. What I believe to have happened is that this disciple whom Jesus loved and who was well aware and confident in Jesus' love for him was reclined and, and, and lying intimately against Jesus' chest and he leaned up to whisper, closeness here, leaned up to whisper and said, Jesus, who is it? What do you mean? And Jesus, close to this disciple, leans down and whispers back to him, it's the one I give the bread to. And then he does it in front of everyone. But not everyone was intimate enough to catch what was exchanged in those whispers because it says the other, one, the other disciples didn't understand what was happening. And then he gives the, the bread. I believe there's, there's a few things to, to point out here. One, Jesus doesn't necessarily have favorites, but he does have intimates. He has people who understand Jesus' incredible love for them and they lean into it and they lean into that chest and they find themselves close, close enough to whisper and exchange the secrets and the mysteries of God and God is revealing those things to the ones who understand his love for them. It's not the ones who have performed the best or who've done the most or, or that. That's not what wins the intimacy. It's not our love for God. It's instead God's love for them. And it's not even that Jesus loved this disciple more than the others. It's true that Jesus loved this disciple, but Jesus loved all the disciples. But this disciple understood his love. And we understand that to be the case because this is how it's recorded in John's gospel. And this is how John is talking about himself. So this isn't, this isn't uh, you know, Luke's account or Mark's account or, or Matthew's account saying, oh, and Jesus really loved John. It's John saying, Jesus really loves me. And, and almost in, a, in an appropriately braggy way about it, you know? It would be as if I went to breakfast uh, with Pastor Mike and Pastor Marcus, and I came home, and Luna asked, oh, what did you have, you know, what did everyone order at breakfast? And I said, well, Pastor, Pastor Mike got the eggs benedict, and Pastor Marcus got the waffles, and the pastor that Jesus loves, he ordered the American breakfast. And, and it'd be like, okay, you're talking about yourself like that. Jesus still loves Pastor Mike and Pastor Marcus. He doesn't necessarily love me anymore, but I am aware now of how much I'm loved. And I am positioning myself, not in what I can do for God, but what God has already done for me. And I'm creating that as my identity and as my foundation for how I live out the rest of my life, for how I even order breakfast. 
is rooted in Jesus' incredible and deep and, and unwarranted and unearned love for me. And that's what we're seeing here. So John is reclining against Jesus. They have this intimate exchange. Uh, none of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. And then since Jesus was their treasurer, the passage continues. Some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for food or to give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. The passage finishes, and, and no one else really understood. Peter, who's a little bit distanced from Jesus, isn't willing to close that gap and, and, and just ask. So he's kind of asking through a friend, like that middle school or high school example earlier. Like, I know I love Jesus, but I don't know if he'd tell me the secrets. I don't, I don't know if he would speak directly to him. Maybe I'll hear him through a pastor, or maybe I'll hear him through a prophet. And, and we see that play out in our own lives. We love God a lot, and I don't doubt any of our love for him. But I think sometimes we miss how much he loves us. And we aren't planting our identity in that truth. Instead, we're trying to still prove to him how much we love him by the things that we do or our church attendance or the clothes that we wear or how great our family looks and, and making sure that the arguments stop in the car and we don't carry them into Sunday morning church. And, and we try to look apart or act apart or behave a certain way. And at the end of the day, like it just, it's exhausting. And it's because we're trying to do this thing backwards. We're trying to to go through life with the cart in front of the horse and we're not starting from the place of God loves me so much that I am the one that he loves and everything else spill out from that. Let's continue to look at a few more passages. Uh, if you stay in John chapter 13 and skip down a few more verses starting in 36, we see this. Simon Peter asked the Lord, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, Peter, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come, Lord? He sounds a little bit like my two-year-old. Why can't I? He asks, I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus answered, die for me? Die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. Peter here again is boasting in his love for God. But what we're about to see is that when we boast in God's love for us, it changes how we do ministry. This passage unfolds a little bit more. We, we're skipping all the way to chapter 19 now. And as the story unfolds, we see that um, Jesus goes to the garden. Uh, he's betrayed by Judas. He gets uh, taken in. Um, he's now on, on trial, and, and they convict him, and, and they say, okay, now we're going we're gonna to crucify him. And through this, Peter has kind of followed at a distance. And as soon as people start asking questions to Peter, Peter, the one who boasted in his love for God. As soon as they start asking questions about Peter, he starts denying it. They say, hey, you're, you're from that same region. Are, are you one of his followers? No, no, not me. You have me confused with someone else. Later on, a, a little girl. He's concerned about the opinion of a little girl. A little girl says, you sound a lot like them. You've got the same accent. I think you were with them. I, I think I remember seeing you with Jesus. And he says, no, 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 no. I swear it. I don't even know the man. And after the third time, the rooster crows. And, and sure enough, this person who had so boasted of his love for God before morning had even come had denied him three times. And I'm not casting stones at Peter because I know I've done the same thing. There have been moments in my life where I've thought, man, I will, I will be better, I will behave better because, gosh darn it, I love God. And like, how can I call myself a Christian and not, you know, do this better and, and still struggle with this and still have this? And it's the same thing of me boasting in my love for God that I'm going to pick myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to do it and instead, in contrast, in chapter 19, we see a disciple who's confident and placed securely in Christ's love for him. We see this unfold, that at the foot of the cross, in Jesus' final hours, 
And in his greatest moments of need, we see verse 26 says this. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, that's John, again, writing his own, like, the biography of Jesus and writing himself in as, the, as like, the leading man of who Jesus loved. He says this, he said to her, dear woman, here's your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. When everyone else had abandoned Jesus, there was one disciple that stayed through the thick of it. And he was the one rooted in Jesus' love for him, not boasting in his love for Jesus. And I think this is true uh, in our lives, that our ministry will fall short, our performance will fall short, we'll even disappoint our own selves when we try to boast in our love for God. But when we rest in the finished work of the Christ, finished work of the cross that says that Jesus loves us, man, our ministry just flows out of it. That we're not concerned what others think, we're not concerned about opinions of people, we're not bothered by what our reputation or what our cost might be, and we'll stand right there at the foot of the cross with Jesus and we'll say, hey, yeah, I'll take, I'll take care of your mom. Don't worry about it. I've got this. I will do this thing for you because I know how much you love me. Instead of being scared even by just the opinion of a, of a girl and saying, no, I don't, I don't know who Jesus is. Like, oh, no. I imagine it now in a, in a modern day context of, of in our neighborhoods of kind of like, what will people think if we tell them that we love Jesus? What will people think if we tell them we go to church? Like, oh, you, you believe that? Like, virgin birth? What? Like, that doesn't make sense. You believe that? Well, no, I mean, sometimes, I don't know. I went last Christmas. Like, I don't, you know, it's... And it becomes that, like, I love God, but I don't. But when we're so fueled by God's love for us, that conversation gets turned around. I'm like, oh, yeah, I might be a little crazy, but his love is even crazier. Like, you know, and, it, and everything just looks different through the lens of God's love for us. Let's, let's look at another, another passage. Um, my big takeaway from, from this moment being Peter knew of his love for Jesus, but John knew of Jesus' love for him. And that ministry flows out of love. Let's look at uh, John 15. In between the time when they had the Last Supper and when Jesus went to the cross, Jesus is giving some final instructions, according to John's gospel, to his disciples. And in chapter 15, verse 9, we see this. Jesus says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Three times. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. In another translation, it says it slightly different. It says it this way. I love each of you with the same love that the Father loves me. You must continually let love nourish your hearts. Man, that's exactly what we're seeing here. Between Peter and John, Peter was trying to do it in his own strength. He was trying to muster up the courage to love God better muster up the strength to love God better. And John was resting and continually letting Jesus' love nourish his heart. The passage continues, if you keep my commands, you will live in my love. Not just visit it once or twice on a Sunday morning. You will live in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands. For I continually live nourished and empowered by his love. The verse continues, my purpose for telling you these things is so that the joy that I experience will fill your hearts with overflowing gladness. So this is my command, love each other deeply as much as I have loved you. I believe that not just ministry flows out of love, but even our evangelism flows out of love. 
In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. A few verses later in 19, it says, We love each other because he loved us first. We see this idea of love and sharing, being loved by God and loving others, so uniquely tied. Like there's a few other passages that in the Bible that talk about other things, our hope, our joy, all the other fruits of the Spirit, self-control, grace, kindness, all those other things. None of them are tied so, so much to what we do for others as love is. And when we live continually abiding in God's love, it's natural for us to love others. I want us to think about it this way. Think, last week, Pastor Mike talked about evangelism, and he hit on the idea of sharing with our neighbors what, what God is doing and, and how that's fueled from a place of this love. And for so long in my life, I thought it was because I love God, I have to go out and love others and tell them. What I'm beginning to understand now through the Holy Spirit is that, that it's because of God's love for me that I am so changed that I can't help but tell others. Here's another way to think about it. My sales pitch to someone in my neighborhood or in my workplace, if me trying to love God sounds a bit like this. How would you like to give up your Sunday mornings, drive on icy snow-packed roads, to attend a service where you can contribute a portion of your salary, and then volunteer your time to do something that you may not want to do? <laughs> if that sounds good, visit us on Sunday morning. You can sign up. Join our club. When it's me trying to love God, that's a lot of what we're trying to sell to the world. And it's no wonder that people aren't interested. It's no wonder that even in our own minds, we shut it down before we start it. Ah, should I talk to my, my coworker? Should I talk to my desk mate? Should I talk to my neighbor? Absolutely, I should. I know that. I love God. I'm a good Christian. What should I tell them? That I wake up early on Sunday mornings. That's not a great place to start. That I give some of my money. Wow, that's also a hard sell. That I volunteer my time. Wow, that's not really going to do it. None of those things sound compelling enough to like break out of our comfort zone and talk to someone about something that feels sometimes difficult to broach, a topic that sometimes might even feel a little taboo, especially in like a workplace setting. When we start from how much we love God and try to evangelize from there, it's broken from the start and it's not bound to work. But on the other hand, if we talk about the love of God and how much his love for us has transformed our lives, that we're his favorite, and no matter what we do, he's still smiling at us and he loves us and he's still inviting us to climb up into his lap and recline against his chest. Man, when you start there and you're like, would you like to be loved unconditionally? Who, who wouldn't? Like if we had some tech billionaire that while vacationing in Colorado, stopped in Castle Rock and found himself at the Rock Church on a Sunday morning and was so moved by the Holy Spirit that he said, you know what? I want to transform this city and I want to pay off every mortgage for everyone who lives in Castle Rock so, they can, so that they can in turn be generous, so that there's not this weight of financial pressure. If they did that and all of us here heard about it, we're like, oh my gosh, there's this big announcement. Hey, this person is here and, and they want to contribute their billions of dollars to pay off everyone's mortgage in Castle Rock. Would we just like go home and be like, wow, that was really neat. Like, I'm glad I was at church this Sunday. That was a great day to be there. I don't know about you, my whole block would know. I would go door to door. I'd be like, hey, like, you've got a house. Uh, I don't know you that well, but it seems like, like maybe you've got 
some mortgage. Uh, there's this guy. He's filthy rich. He wants to pay it. And, and my whole block would know before the end of the day. Like, I would just, because you'd have to. Like, this is so great. He's just giving it away. All you have to do, you live here? Cool. Like, you're eligible. And yet, and yet I find myself, and this is like a, a dark, like, oh. Like, and I don't want to hit you with condemnation. I just want to point out the difference of when, when I'm focused on my love for God, I don't have that same ambition to tell my whole neighborhood about, like, what he's done for me. Because I'm focused on my love for him. I'm focused on my behavior. I'm focused on I'm not good enough. I still feel like a hypocrite some days. So why would I go and tell them about this thing when I don't even feel like I can live it fully? Because I'm focused on my behavior and I'm focused on my love for God. But when I'm only focused, but when I'm only focused on his incredible love for me and nothing that I can do, I don't have to go home and study amortization charts and, and, and try to learn more about this good news before I can really tell my neighbors. I don't have to understand interest rates or what Wall Street Prime is. Like, I don't have to know any of that. I just have to know there's some really good news and a really generous guy, and he wants to give you something. And that's all I would need to know before I went out to my neighbors. All I have to know is that God loves me so much, and it's transformed my life. I bet you would like it. I, I, I don't know all your details. I don't know your whole life story. Maybe you've already paid off your house. I don't know. But, like, this sounds pretty good. Like, would you at least be interested in hearing more? I can take you to meet with him. But instead, we, we just sort of, we get caught up in our minds, and, and we're worried about what other people are going to think because it's like, oh, and, and I feel like Peter, where I'm boasting in God's love, I'm boasting in my love for God, unaware of his love for me, and I'm swayed by the opinions of, of children, and I'm, and I'm scared of what other people are going to think, and I, and I don't really know if I can go out and evangelize my, my street, if I can tell my coworkers, because I'm caught up in my behavior and my weak love. We see in Luke chapter 10 uh, an interesting conversation between Jesus and a religious expert. In Luke 10, 25, it begins this way. It says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him, this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? At this time, this was kind of their Bible, the first five books, uh, and, and this was their law. This is, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must, this is a command, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. I want to pause there. The Old Testament law said you must do these things. And I don't know about you, but I think there are moments when I get focused on my love for God, I get focused on the, all my heart, all my strength, all my might, all, my, all those things, and I, and, I, and I just get focused on my frailty. And I get focused on like how fractured my love is, and then I'm not able to do it with all my heart. And I'm not able to do it with all my mind. During the 9 o'clock service, my mind wandered at one point, and I was thinking about what I was going to eat for lunch, when I should have been worshiping God. My love is frail. <laughs> it's fractured, and like... I just pictured Jesus like, couldn't you tarry with me one hour? And I'm like, no, I couldn't. I was distracted. I had to bring my mind back. No, I'm supposed to be worship. And the law says this, and we will always fall short of the law. The Old Testament says you must love God with all these things, and it was impossible to do. We couldn't do it. Even just for an hour, it was still too much to ask. But when Jesus came, the new covenant, the new deal that he made, that he cut with us, he said, hey, forget this old deal. I want to cut a new deal with you. He said, it's no longer how much you love me, it's, it's this is how much I love you. Let's continue. The religious expert is responding in this way. You must do all these things. You have to love them really good. And he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this 
and you'll live. Like, that's, you know, good answer. Great. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And he goes on to, Jesus responds with his story. But before we get to the story, I want to point out again that, that the old covenant says, love your neighbor as yourself. But in John 15, Jesus is saying, hey, love people like I've loved you. Again, old covenant required that we love them like we love ourselves. New covenant is we love them like, we love Jesus, like Jesus loved us. We have to understand how Jesus loves us. It's no longer under new covenant, grace, and the finished work of Jesus. It's no longer how much we love God. It's now how much God loves us that we should be focused on. Because from there flows how we love other people. It's never, I'm going to love them how much I love myself. Frail, fractured love. It's no longer, I'm going to love them like I love my God. Frail, fractured love. It's now, I'm going to love them like the love I'm experiencing from Jesus. But let's continue. This story that, that Jesus tells, he goes on to... to kind of poke at some of these religious people, these people who knew the law really, really well. And he tells a story about a religious man, a Jewish person, who gets uh, mugged, jumped, beaten, and left for dead on the side of the road. A pastor, the Bible says a priest, but for this setting, we'll say a pastor walks by, and, uh, and he sees the man. And he says, oh, like that guy's bleeding and broken and, and bruised, but I'm running late for church service. I've got a great message i got to preach this morning, so I need to go. And so he hurries on. And then a little bit later, this guy still lying in the ditch, bleeding out, a worship leader walks by and sees him and thinks, oh, I should stop and help him. I love God and I know it's what I'm supposed to do, but I have a responsibility to God. I'm supposed to be leading worship. I'm late for a sound check. And so he hurries on. And then a third person comes and the Bible calls him a, a Samaritan. And, yeah, a Samaritan who is in this context both like half Jew, half Gentile, and they're the outcast. Jews and, Gen Jews and Gentiles did not agree. They did not like each other. Um, Jesus refers to him as a despised Samaritan. And the, and the Samaritan feels compassion for this man lying. And, and we can kind of equate compassion, at least to a level, to being like love. This man feels a love for him. Those other religious people feels an obligation and a duty to God of like, oh, well, this is how much I love God. Look, I'm showing up to church. I'm on time. I know the worship songs. But this guy, who was not a part of their community of faith, saw him, felt compassion, or we could say love, and brought him in, put him on his own donkey, loaded him up in his car, picked up this person on the side of the road, put him in their car, though it may cost some danger to himself, bandaged his wounds, gave him his own resources, took him to the hospital, paid his hospital expenses, and said, if it goes more than this while you're treating him, when I come back, I'll pay the rest. Jesus finishes this story and asks, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And Jesus asked, Jesus asked the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Jesus wasn't exemplifying the behavior of the people who were confident in their love for God. But instead, he's exemplifying, exemplifying the type of behavior that we see in people who understand how much God loves them. And I think if we begin to reposition ourselves, how we see ourselves, either us loving God or us being loved by God, it has the power to transform how we do life, how we love our spouse, our children, and how we love our neighbors. Because then our evangelism changes, our outlook on life changes. We're no longer influenced by the opinions of others. We're not worried what little girls will think about us. Instead, we are confident that no matter what happens, Jesus is so in love with me. That my co if my coworkers think I'm a fool, if my neighbors think I'm strange, if someone calls me a weird name, it's okay because I am so loved by Jesus. Not because of what I did, but because of who I am. 
and that we could even begin to call ourselves the ones that Jesus loved, the son that Jesus loves, the husband that Jesus loves, the wife that Jesus loves, the business person that Jesus loves, the doctor, lawyer, teacher, mother that Jesus loves. And it doesn't mean that he loves anyone else less. He's God. He's big enough to love us all. But that we would begin to think of ourselves as a favorite, as loved by him. Not of how much we love him, but that how much he loves us. I'm going to invite Pastor Marcus up. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, we see this. Paul, who was one of, uh, one of the apostles who helped evangelize a ton of the, the known world at the time. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He's now at the end of his life when he's writing Philippians. He's sitting in a jail cell, and he's writing these prison epistles, these letters to other churches to encourage them. And in his encouragement to this church in Philippi, he says, verse 10, we read, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Here's a man who obviously already knew Christ. He had the Damascus Road experience, like, and he walked in power. We see incredible miracles time and time again all throughout the New Testament, these stories of how he did miraculous and, and wild things. And yet, towards the end of his life, he still has this goal of to know God experientially. Not just like to have a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge to know Christ and to experience his mighty power. Paul knew that even at the end of his life, even with all of his accolades, there was still more. And what I believe is true for us, just as it was for Paul, is that there is still more to God's love. Still more that we haven't experienced. And it's not wrapped up or tied in our behavior or our performance or our good works. It's tied up in the cross and it's tied up in the life and testimony of Jesus. And I believe that there is more for us to experience and that as we experience more and more of it, we're changed. I want you to think maybe in your own experiences, the people that you've interacted with. For me, being in church a lot, I've seen the people who have grown up in church. I've seen the people who have lived in church decades. And, and it seems like in some ways, not all, but in some ways, their love for other people has grown cold. They've come accustomed to the rigors of church life and, and to the expectancy of, of having kind of this facade of, of looking well and dressing well and being put together and not using curse words and, and behavior modification. But the people that I'm really excited about in this season, as we're talking about reaching our neighborhoods and, and loving the lost, the people who I'm really excited about are the people who have love encounters with Jesus. The people who've grown up far from him and have come to a radical encounter with him. And now all of a sudden they're on fire for him and they're telling everyone they can. And while those raised in church might attend a Sunday morning and say, well, I'll read a few more chapters of my Bible this week and then I'll tell, I'll tell my neighbors. The person who, who has not grown up in church but had a love encounter with Jesus is transforming their workplaces. They can't shut it up. It's like a fire in their bones and they're just so excited to tell people not about their doctrine or their theology or their stance on pre- or post-tribulation, none of that. They're excited to tell about a love that they encountered. An unearned, unwarranted, unending, unfathomable kind of love that they've experienced. And so that's my prayer for us this morning, is that we would experience God's incredible love for us. That we wouldn't get caught up in what we do or don't know or how good we have or have not behaved. But we'd be so captured by God's love for us that it would set us on fire that we'd be so motivated, so consumed, so compelled by his incredible love that we'd say, why, why wouldn't you want to know about this? Like, how couldn't you be interested in it? 
you haven't tasted or seen the goodness of God yet, let me introduce you. Let me show you. Let me make an introduction. For those of us who are stuck in the old ways of trying to earn love or trying to perform well or trying to behave good enough, putting the cart in front of the horse saying, no, I can, I can do it a little bit better. I can fight this addiction. I can, I can be a better person. I can be a better dad. I just need to try harder. I just need to convince God that I love him more. If you're like me and you're still stuck in those patterns and you're fighting them, I want to give you a few different ways we can do it. The first of which is daily declarations. Every morning waking up and, and like John in his own biography of Jesus' life saying, I was the one he loved. He loved everyone, sure, but he really loved me. And waking up every morning and looking yourself square in the mirror and saying, Jesus loves me. Before you do anything for him, before you try to earn it, when you've still got morning breath and crazy hair and you haven't taken a shower and you look square in the mirror and you say, oh, he really loves me. He loves everyone, but he really loves me. He has lots of favorites, but I'm the most favorite. And to declare that, not just in the morning, but throughout the day, when you blow it with your kids or when you, when you totally mess up in front of your, your coworkers and, and you remind yourself, but I'm God's favorite. Like even in this moment when I've completely destroyed my reputation or have made a, a huge mistake, I'm still his favorite. And he still has an incredible amount of love for me. I couldn't lose it because I never earned it. It was a gift that was given and I have to begin to recognize it. Daily declarations, that's number one. Number two, asking for the experience of God's love. In February, Heidi Baker and Leif Hetland are coming and they're gonna minister at this incredible conference. If you haven't gotten tickets, you can still get tickets, get the tickets. But this isn't a sales pitch. These are two lives that were transformed by a love encounter. Their ministry has never been the same because they had an encounter with the love of God. It wasn't that they studied long enough and now all of a sudden they have the revelation and they go out preaching. No, no, no. It was a baptism. It was a covering. It was a washing of love. And when they had this experience with love, it transformed everything, the way they lived their lives. If you've, if you've met Leif before, if you've been at one of the conferences when he's been here, he looks dead in your eyes and it feels so weird because you've never been so loved by a stranger. When he looks into your eyes, it feels so strange because the love of God is foreign to us. We don't understand it in our earthly relationships. You can only understand it by the love of God. You can only understand it by the relationship with Jesus. It's the only way to comprehend it. And so these baptisms of love, these experiences of love, but you don't have to wait until February to get it. You can ask God for it today. You can say, Jesus, I want to experience your incredible love. I want to know the unearned, unwarranted, unmerited love that you have to offer me. I want to experience it. Like Paul in Philippians 3, I want to know experientially this love that I've heard talked about, this love that I've read about, this love that I didn't think was for me, but now I know I want to experience the power of this love. Ask God for it. He's more than happy to pour it out on you. That's number two. Number one, daily declarations. Number two, ask for it. And number three, renewing our mind through God's word. Picking up the Bible daily, reading through it and saying, okay, this is the new truth. Those were the facts. The facts were I blew it. The facts were I didn't earn it. But the truth of God says that I still have it. The fact is that I don't think I feel it today, but the truth is it's still there. More than ever, the love of God is still there. And so renewing our minds, transforming the lies kicking down the walls and, and tearing down the lies, like the Reckless Love Song talks about, and renewing our minds through the Word of God, 
so that we can come into alignment with the truth of God that we are his favorites and that he loves us. I want to pray that over you this morning and then I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I don't want to just say, I hope you experience his love. Go out. Maybe you'll find it later. Like, I want to also give you a moment to experience it now. So let me pray over you and then we're going to sing a song and I want to invite you to ask God for it, to step into it and to experience this incredible love. Father, we love you, but we're learning today that that's not what matters. Lord, we're learning today that what really matters is your love for us and how incredibly you love us. The depth, the width, the height of this love that could never be taken away, that could never be lost. Jesus, we thank you for what you did at the cross to exemplify it, to show us, to model it for us of this incredible love. Jesus, wash our minds like you washed the disciples' feet. Wash our hearts and help us to understand just how loved we are, that we are friends of God, the best friends of God. And that it's not our behavior and it's not our good works. It's none of that. You loved us even when we were still enemies. You loved us even before we knew you. You loved us first. Jesus, I pray that we would come to a greater understanding of your love. That it would be the foundation of our identity and that from it would flow our ministry and our evangelism and how we talk to and treat our neighbors and our family and our friends. Jesus, we pray for an encounter this morning by the power of of your spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen.